All right, wonderful. Good to see you ladies again. And I'll be back uh, next month as we look at chapter 5. I enjoyed the time that we had in chapter 3 looking at God's timing, which isn't always ours. And we definitely agree with that, don't we? That God has a, at times, a different timing. It's always correct. It's always right because it's sovereign. It's providential. So we come to this lesson, and I just say a more eternal perspective is how I'm going to coin it. I'm living life backward. Um, Chapter 4, he titles it, Living a Life Less Upwardly Mobile. And I think you'll understand in a moment why he titled it as such, Ecclesiastes 4. So I want to emphasize on this eternal perspective that we need to have when it comes to considering chapter 4. And what's interesting uh, in Anchorage, you know, I've been doing these, um, what we've called them, talks at the Hive. And in one of those talks, the question was asked me maybe three weeks ago, uh, maybe even more, about chapter 4 and some of its challenges. So we spent uh, a portion of that time even then talking about chapter 4, which was good, sort of, sort of prepped my mind to at least think about some of the questions um, that some of you may have. Now, when we think about this chapter, here is the first thought. You're considering, and Solomon is considering, the reality of a world cursed by sin. Um, And this can lead to, when you're considering, can lead to spiritual depression if the right perspective is not motivating and informing us. It can lead to spiritual depression. And what do I mean by that? That one wants to check out on life, if you will. Uh, Will this get any better? And you can succumb to that as Solomon is looking out on society. And first he starts off, which we'll consider in a moment, all these acts of oppression. He's looking at the oppressor and those who are oppressed. And he even goes so far as to say, maybe it's better not to even be born. Maybe it's better to be dead, but you have to have a perspective on life uh, that is eternal and think about your purpose to get you past that mindset. And Solomon is grappling through it, and obviously he's grappling through a number of things in the book of Ecclesiastes, as even we considered last month, really not grappling with it. He was just stating the case, here's the reality that there is a perfect time for everything and a time for life and a time for death. And so when we look at chapter 4, it provides wisdom, if we look at it properly, for navigating a world filled with what? What is the world filled with? Well, oppression, what else? Envy, discontent, loneliness, neglect, and naivete. All of these are part of the world, plus more. I mean, this is a a shortened list, if you will. But this list is focused on what we do see in chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes. We obviously see oppression. He begins the chapter by talking about it. There is envy because he says a part of the motivation for man to achieve is because he's envious of his neighbor and he wants to outdo him. There is a sense of being discontent because there is a man that's working hard and he's not satisfied with his riches. There's a person who's lonely because he has no one else to share his riches with. And then there's neglect 
And we'll see later in the chapter, there is neglect of a leader who forgets how to discern and to be wise and to heed instruction. And then there's the naive, and the naive because they're thinking, oh, this next leader, that's the one. They're going to lead us to the promised land, uh, but that simply isn't true. So as we work our way through um, this chapter, I want to take there are three parts to it. What I'm going to do first is hit some highlights like I did before, some highlights from the book itself. So I, I selected certain quotes, and we'll try to understand them in a given context and see if they provide us with insight. And then what I'm going to do is start to walk through uh, the text itself, just go to Ecclesiastes 4, and I have six pictures that we're going to walk through. Now, in one of those six pictures, we're going to take a bit of a hiatus, but I think it's profitable because I want us to go a little bit deeper into one area about what is a better life, because that comes up in Ecclesiastes 4. What is better And Proverbs talks about this better life that we're to have, and and it makes a comparison, and it says this is better than that. So that's what we're going to do. So first, some highlights from the book itself. We'll get into the text, and while we're in the text, we'll look at this um, example in Proverbs, and then we'll come back and finish up. And if there is any time left, um, we'll see. Um, I'll open it up to questions, okay? All right, excellent. So let's move ahead. Some highlights from the book itself. Um, If you were to look at chapters, not chapter, page 63, the opening quote that's there, it says, when a man comes to die, no matter what his talents and influence and genius, if he dies unloved, his life must be a failure to him and his dying a cold horror. Think about that. You have achieved all of these things in life, but you are unloved. Uh, No one is there to mourn you. No one is there to miss you. No one can give an honest testimony of your life. And some of you know, as uh, Donna alluded to earlier, uh, a death, a tragic death in my family. Um, Recently, my great nephew um, tragically murdered, senseless, by a 22-year-old who is now facing charges of premeditated murder, um, horrible. Um, And I was in Orlando on Saturday for the service. But what was interesting about it, not really, that's not a a good word. It's more than interesting. What's compelling about it is uh, Michael, what's his name, that he was loved. He's gone on now. And tears, genuine tears were being shed for him. People missed him. His classmates were there all the way back from high school. Michael was 35. His classmates, the class of 2006, um, from the high school that I attended as well, they were there. Uh, My sister, you know, who is his grandmother, um, it hit her so hard when we went to the public viewing. And then um, when we were at the service itself, I I just sat next to her and at times just held her hand. I just put my arm around her. And my other nephew, as he started to have a difficult time as well because they missed, um, you know, their brother. They, they missed their um, cousin. They missed um, their grandchild. And there was a portion as well, one of his cousins, he got up and wrote a poem 
um, for Michael. And I thought, wow, that was just so very insightful. You really cared for him. And he says, yes, I did. He was my hero. Here are the things that he did. I really looked up to him. And it blessed me so much to hear it. See, that's a life that's loved. But I agree with what Steinbeck is saying. Um, life is a failure if at the end of your life no one loves you. No one loves you. And you haven't loved anyone. For sure it's a failure. Uh, you know, I've been to services before where, and I don't know if I've mentioned this the last time. I think I've mentioned it in, in Anchor before. Um, but I've been to services before where people are made to be liars. What do I mean by that? They're made to be liars because they're really not telling the truth about their relationship to that person. And you know that they aren't. If you know the family, they come up and they say these things about them and how close they were and the intimacy that they shared. And you're saying to yourself, I, I know full well the relationship you had with them. That's not true. It's too late to try to create it now. They're gone. And we don't want to live our life that way, correct? If we have an eternal perspective, that is to be loved and to love, then at the end of our life, we can say in some measure it has been successful. 64 says this, this is the dominant question of the modern mind, and it is a question that we are trying to answer all the time. Some of us spend a great deal of time explicitly pondering, pondering what? Why am I here? What is my purpose? How do I live my life with fulfillment? And we know that everyone has dealt with this question at some point in time. As a matter of fact, we most likely deal with it on a daily basis. And that's not wrong. It's not wrong to consider, okay, I have another day. What am I supposed to be doing? I have another month that I've been given. You experience a birthday and you ask yourself, how will I live my life? And so Ecclesiastes is forcing us to think about these issues. And again, in chapter 4 as well, it is something that we ponder. Uh, the author also communicated this. Um, Go back. When a man comes to die, he says, no matter what his talents and influence and genius, if he dies unloved, it's a failure. I just said that. So let's move ahead. So embrace life for what it is rather than for what you like it to be. Live it before God with reverence and obedience. This is the pathway to joy. Even though you, as you walk it, there may be mystery and pain. And that is such a true statement. Uh, we live our life for the Lord with reverence and obedience. That is, we have that sense of he is hallowed, he is holy, and we live before him in the fear of God. Because this is what Solomon says at the end of the book, when the end of the matter is this, that you are supposed to fear God and keep his commandments. And of course, wisdom is what is the beginning of wisdom. It is the fear of God. But yet, fear will always, if it is genuine, will always manifest itself in obedience. And this is why Jesus Christ said, if you love me, you will do what with my commandments? You will keep my commandments. And there is a sense of mystery and pain. We don't know everything. We don't know all the reasons. Even as we considered um, in November the idea that I don't know why it's a time for birth and a time for death. I don't know the details of why a 35-year-old is now gone and now a 22-year-old may be facing 
um, the death penalty. You know, in Florida, um, premeditated murder, he could be on death row. Why is that? Now, of course, there's a general answer. We would all agree with it and affirm it because there is sin, because of a fall. But the particulars of it, we don't know. Why this person and not the other person? Um, Why this tragedy of this accident that took place? Why a hit and run? Why? Why does one person have success and the other doesn't? Why does one person have success and they tend to squander it? And one person is diligent and hardworking and they're very generous, but yet they seem to always be fighting to get ahead. We don't know um, this side of heaven. But we trust the sovereign God. And of course, in this life, there's pain. And with all the, <laughs> the issues of life, we will experience that pain. But God uses it ultimately for his glory and our good. Self-love. Why do I put that up there? Because an interesting quote on page 67. And the author says, You can either hate your neighbor and so destroy yourself, 4, 1 through 6, Or you can love your neighbor and so love yourself for 7 through 16. Now, we need to pause here for a moment. Um, Love yourself by loving your neighbor. Well, the scripture is clear. Paul communicated. No one has to teach themselves or fight uh, with themselves to love themselves. We already do that, do we not? It's a reality. We love self. This is why we preserve self. This is why we look out for self. And so our issue is not that we don't love self. The issue is that we need to learn to love other people. Personally, I would have liked for that to have been worded differently. Um, Or you can love your neighbor and so love yourself. Uh, If I can fill it out a bit more, I would say, I would add this to it. And so in loving your neighbor, then we benefit ourselves because that means that we're walking according to God's uh, specific plan for us to follow those two great commandments. So I am preserving my spiritual life. I'm nurturing my spiritual life. And this is why Paul says you, you, you nurture yourself. Why do you do it? Because you love yourself. And in this way, if we can say, yes, I love my neighbor, not in so love yourself, I would say, I love my neighbor, and then I'm benefited by my expressions of love. Because if I love my neighbor, Under the power of the Holy Spirit, it means that God is using me, in one sense, as a vessel to express his love. And I reap the benefit of that. Um, Another thought, and here's our key, look away. Why do I say look away? This is what I thought about the author is trying to say with this statement. And he says in page 69, Ecclesiastes knows Uh, how we feel if we stare long enough and hard enough at the way the world really is. We are simply not used to doing this. We cope with it through distraction. And this is why I gave it this heading, look away. Because we can look around the world and we see it and it can weigh upon us so much that we we learn to distract ourselves. Instead of at times looking at it long enough to force us to think about what is life, and instead of allowing it to force us to, to develop compassion for other people that are hurting and have needs, we distract ourselves because it's too hurtful. At times it can be very discouraging. 
And those distractions can sometimes come from a heart of shallowness. Um, The world is a mess, is it not? (laughs) I think we all know that. It really is. In so many different levels it is. But if we focus so much on the uh, issues of the world, I think that becomes a distraction in itself. You say, wait a minute, what do you mean? I thought the distraction was when we just um, fill our life with the things of the world. That's a distraction. We fill our life with social media. That's a distraction. We fill our lives with materialism. That's a distraction. We pursue certain relationships. That's a distraction. So it takes us away from deeply thinking about the world and around us. We distract ourselves. And people in the Western world can very easily distract themselves. Uh, There are people in other parts of the world. They cannot so easily distract themselves. Well, that is by way of things that are material because there are places we can go. Um, I I guess as you know, I grew up in Orlando, Florida, and um, one of my first jobs um, was working at Disney World. Oh, man, it was a great job. I really did. It was a great job. I was never Mickey. I was too tall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, never. I could have been Pluto, though. He's kind of tall. Uh, so I did other things. It was a fun job. And you know what Disneyland and Disney World is called? The happiest place where? On Earth. See, this is what we do sometimes. So life is hard, and what do we do? Pay entirely too much money to go to Disney World. It is expensive. It really is. Ouch. Get a second mortgage to take your family, right? (laughs) So we can distract ourselves because we can go to Disneyland and in this world and that world and that place and universe, and we can do these things. And I'm not saying it's necessarily bad, but there are people in the world that just don't have that option. Here's life. I can't just pick up and say, huh, I'm out of here. I'm taking a day off. I'm going to go to such and such and get away from this madness. No, it's not always that easy, is it? So we have to find a different way to gain a perspective on the world that's around us. Um, This as well. The principle of Matthew 6.34, you know, we just finished our series, uh, at least I did, on anxiety, and verse 34 tells us what? What does Matthew 6.34 tell us? What does it say? In class, I was almost about to say, use your preaching voice, because I'm used in class when I'm asking a student to read a verse, I automatically use your preaching voice, but I had to catch myself. Uh, Well, I guess, you know, Titus 2, it would be okay, you know, right? Titus 2 would be okay. So what does it tell us? Someone say it for us. Because today has what? Trouble of its own. Don't worry about tomorrow. That's a part of that perspective we have to gain. And the author said, this is a bit of a longer quote. He says this, I realized later that my neighbor's proverbial wisdom is exactly the point our preacher might have made had he accompanied us on our disastrous outing. Stop chasing the wind. Stop thinking the future will be better and easier. Stop thinking if only things were different, you would be a better person, and that one day you would be a better father. 
You do not know the future or what lies around the corner, whether good or ill. Perhaps these are indeed the very best days of my life. Maybe I'll be dead tomorrow. And this is in part what James is saying. He says, don't say that we're going to go to such and such a place if the Lord wills. And who knows? So that's telling us to live, although I'm absolutely, I think he's abhorrent as a teacher. Um, I'm glad I forget his name sometimes from Houston, um, the smiley preacher. You should know, you're Texas. Yeah, Joel Osteen, yeah, Joel Osteen. <laughs> I just said because she's from Texas, not, not because you have his entire series in your home. No, um, I'm messing with you. <laughs> She's turning colors over here. Um, Right. Your best life now. There's truth to that. Now, he's perverted it, but there's truth to that. And I would even say not just truth to it. It's biblical. Live your life now for the Lord. And this is really what Francis Schaeffer was saying. How should we then live? If there is eternity and that is a reality, how do I live now? Tomorrow's not guaranteed. And I, I don't want to say this too often, but this, it, it's important. Like my great nephew, there, there's no tomorrow. It was that day, and it ended. He was going back to go to his home to be with his little five-year-old son. And his five-year-old son asked, you know, later on, after he's not back after a while, where is dad? There, is, there was no tomorrow for him. No tomorrow. And that's why I shared when I did on Saturday about, you know, it's better to be in the house of, from Ecclesiastes 7-2, it's better to be in the house of mourning than the house of feasting because this is the end of all man and the living takes it to heart. Think about your life. So ladies, the question for you and for all of us really, I want to live that life now because tomorrow is not guaranteed. So I thought that appropriate, that principle from Matthew 6, 34 is there. And then page 74, contentment through subtraction, not addition. And he was referencing Jeremiah Burroughs, and he said that his, he had stated before that if we really want to be content, it's not about addition, it's subtraction. I think we'd all agree with that because um, the scripture tells us what? Sometimes one can be like the leech. And the leech does what? Enough is enough. Is that what the leech says? No, it's like give, give. And all of us, I shouldn't say all of us, some of us, our journey is different. But some of us were on a journey where we thought if I only had that next thing or that next relationship or that next whatever it was, then you find yourself at the end of the next and you say, I'm still not content. Yeah. So important to think that way page 75, it is possible to know the price of everything but the value of nothing. I like that. I'm going to have to put that away. I really like that. That stood out to me. And that's in the context of all the addition. I know what things cost, and I know what I want, and I know what I have to strive for to achieve it, but then you realize you know the value of nothing. The things that are most important in life, and it boils down to God and your neighbor. Some people do know their portfolio quite well, but they know nothing of what really matters in life. 
and then the chapter distilled. We'll put it this way. My last thought from the chapter. It goes back to page 65. He says, he gives us a question to free us from ourselves. How are we doing? We, not I. That's the chapter in a nutshell, we, not me. And he is right in that. And it is this. It is the call to live the greatest commandments. Love God and neighbor. And that's why even as I heard what um, Donna was saying earlier, it was a great introduction to this. That's it distilled. Love God and your neighbor. Live with this sense of eternity. If we are going to understand life and all of its bleakness and the mess that it is. So now, and the remaining time, I want to look at these six pictures in need of perspective um, and answer some questions from chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes. Six pictures that I see in need of perspective. And number one is this. The bleak picture of a sinful society is missed by the dead and unborn. Let's look at chapter 4. Notice what he says. Then I looked again at the acts of oppression, um, or the oppressed, which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who were already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. That's a bleak picture, is it not? So Solomon looks around society and he says, I see oppression of people and we can surely see it today in every aspect of our world that people are oppressed and people misuse their power and he says there's none to comfort those who are oppressed this is reality now some uh, they could they get confused in trying to understand ecclesiastes and they'll say wait a minute how is it that solomon being the king if he looks out and sees all these acts of oppression why doesn't he do something about it? He's the king. And all these acts of oppression happening you know, in his cabinet, if you will, he should surely do something about it. He is going beyond just Israel, and he's going beyond the things that he can control. And he's just looking out on society as a whole. And he's saying, here's the reality. People with power abuse it. Why do they abuse it? Because they haven't thought about those two fundamental truths, love God and love your mate, your neighbor. Because if you have power, you will use it to do good instead of using it to do evil. Why? Because you love God and you love your neighbor. Now, all of us, if we were to pause for a moment and say, what is your opinion? And I'll come to this again in verse 15 and 16. What is your opinion of politicians today? What do they do with their power? What would you say? They, they use it as a, as a wonderful statesman. Would you say that? No, you wouldn't say that. They abuse it. And I've seen levels of abuse it to the point you say to yourself, had I not been really fully aware of it, I would have never believed it. Absolute abuse of power. Oppressive. And notice there's a bit of sympathy that Solomon has. And I saw the tears of the oppressed. No one to comfort. And he says it again. There's no one to comfort them. 
There's no one to comfort them. To the point he says, maybe it's better that you're never even born. But that's not the solution ultimately. But he's struggling, if you will, and presenting these questions and forcing everyone to think deeply about it. Because we do live in a world that's sin curse and you can't escape it. Yeah, you can't escape premeditated murder. You can't escape abortion. You can't escape cheating. It's all around us. Then notice what else comes up here. Um, Verse 4, just verse 4, the bleak picture of a selfish motivation is vanity because it inevitably will inevitably leads to sinful choices. What do I mean by that? Notice verse 4. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity in striving after wind. This selfish motivation. So why are they getting ahead? What's that person's motivation for his education? What's that person's motivation for his new company that he's starting? What's his motivation for promotion? What's his motivation for sales? Solomon's saying often it is envy in the sense that he wants to outdo his neighbor, a rivalry between man and his neighbor. Well, but if we are thinking properly, love God and love your neighbor, then you're not envious of your neighbor. You don't covet what your neighbor has. But society in part is built on that. How can I outdo the other person? And some of you, if we were to pause right now and you were to share maybe some testimonies from the time that you have uh, in your workplace, you can you can most likely share, yes, I've seen it. I see it in the workplace. People will step on someone else to do what? To get ahead. They're using other individuals as a ladder to their own success, which Solomon is saying ultimately isn't success, but you have because look how you have achieved it. Not through character and honest and simply hard work, but you have abused others along the way. There's a rivalry in the heart. Now, a rivalry cannot um, be beneficial at times. I think it can be. There's a there's a, a healthy rivalry that a person can have. They understand it. They know it. They would never do anything to the other person to hurt them. But they're saying, okay, I'm going to get there first. Um, many things that have been achieved in the world today is based on rivalry, space exploration, rivalry, um, discovering the poles, rivalry. Uh, it, that's a part of how we live. And sometimes that's beneficial. I mean, I can think about it even with my kids. You know, my twins, Joseph and Jordan, oh, still rivals to this day. Um, and why is it that they, a lot of the things that they did together, because the other was trying to outdo his brother. And I remember when they um, were, they went to a camp, they went to Camp Pendleton for a couple of weeks with a special program when they were still, I guess, in high school. And they came back and, and Jordan said, Dad, I think I want to be a Marine because he was going to go into the Army. And I said, well, why, son? He said, because it's just harder. Now, he's the younger brother, 15 minutes, but still younger. <laughs> do you think, what do you think his old brother did at that point? I want to be a Marine, too. I wasn't thinking about it until you said it. <laughs> But now you're not going to outdo me, especially since you said it was harder, then I'm going to choose the harder thing as well. 
So some of that's good. And I see it even to this day. I'm like, the two of you lay off a little bit, okay? Give us a break. But here it's not. It's not that innocent type, if you will, to spur someone on. I'm, I'm, it's a rival that says, I'm going to step on you to get ahead. Why? Because you don't love your neighbor. Because you don't have an eternal perspective. Then, see, that's why it leads to these sinful choices. And various sinful choices. Number three is this. Verse six, the bleak picture of hard work loses the better life. And this is where we'll take a bit of an excursion here. But notice verse six. Now, before I go to verse six, let me briefly come on on verse five. The fool folds his hands and consumes his flesh. So what he does very quickly, he says, yes, there's a rivalry. Um, it's still vanity and striving after win because you may get ahead, but because you got ahead at the sacrifice of someone else, it's all vanity. Now, hold on a second. Don't think that you should be a bum, is what he's saying. I'm not saying that hard work isn't good, but the motivation and why you're doing it can make it ill. Because verse 5 is what it's saying. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. This is why Proverbs 6.10 says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, and what's going to happen? That person's poverty is going to come upon them. So he's not saying that. Then in verse 6, he says, one hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. Now here, the labor is in the context of this vain labor, not just labor in general. And he, what is he saying in verse 6? You need to learn to enjoy life. And that's setting up what he's going to say later on about the rich man who has no one. Learn to enjoy life. And I'll say it, occasionally you may go to that place that's terribly expensive and enjoy it. Go with some friends and enjoy it. Have a day. Then come back to the reality of life. And the things that I enjoy, it's just fun. And guess what? Then I come back to the reality of life. And this is what Solomon is saying. Learn to rest. Learn to enjoy life. Because he says that one is better than you out there striving and striving. You have no one to share it with. And you're striving. You're stepping on other people. Although you have double the labor, it's still vanity. Because you're forfeiting the better life. And this is where a bit of our excursion is here. A look at the better way in Proverbs. And I'm not sure how much of this I'll get through. I'll send you the PowerPoint again like I did before because there are a lot of verses that talk about this better. Uh, wisdom is better than materialism. Uh, for her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than fine gold. Wisdom is better than jewels. Um, my food is better than gold. Sixteen, sixteen. How much better is it to get wisdom than gold? So 3, 4, 8, 11, 8, 19, it is better. And so the person that's striving, he doesn't realize that you're not striving for the things that are necessarily better. Unless, let me say this, a person may strive and gain material things, but if they have an eternal perspective, they'll use those material things for the glory of God and to help other people. And that motivates them. I know some people, and they actually would say, I'm trying to make more money. 
Now, initially, if you just don't know the person and you don't hear it in context, you would say, oh, my, you worldly individual, right? <laughs> but knowing the person and in context, they're saying, I want to take more from the world so I can give it to the Lord. Then keep striving. I pray that your profit margins will increase <laughs> as long as you have that perspective. Um, and as well, notice what it says, 16.8, better is a little righteousness than great un- income with injustice. A good name is more desired than great wealth. So character is better. Character is better than these things. Character is not striving after win. It is not vanity. Here's another better about contentment. Better is he who is lightly esteemed and has a servant than he who honors himself and lacks bread. That's a fool, isn't he? 16, 19, it is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. 25, 7, for it is better that is said of you, come up here than for you to be placed lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. That's pretty embarrassing, isn't it? It's just saying, know your place. It's better for someone to say, hey, come sit closer to me. Then you be sitting closer and they say to you, why are you here? <laughs> you know, once before I was flying, you know, I fly all the time now, and I know all sorts of tricks and trays. I'm down to the point where I know, probably know too much. What's the better seat on different aircraft down to, you know, the 787-10, the Dreamliner. Never pick number five because they're missing a window. If you pick number nine, it is. It's, it's a bad seat to take. And I know all sorts of stuff, right? But, but when I first flew, the first time I flew, I don't know how old I was. I got on the plane, and I thought, man, these seats are bigger up here. <laughs> and guess what I did? I sat down, and the stewardess came over to me and said, um, young man, do you have your ticket? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I do. And I gave it to her, and she said, you're back there. <laughs> I'll never forget it. Boy, how embarrassing was that? I thought, this is great. I'm, I'm on pretty early. Get the big seats. No, you pay for the big seats. That's what he's saying. It's better to just have someone say, come on up here to the big seats than go down to, like, way back there. (laughs) Honesty is better. A poor man who walks in his integrity, um, a man in his kindness, is better for, is a poor man who walks in his integrity than he who is crooked, though he be rich or perverse, uh, is what it's talking about here. 1632. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. So Proverbs 9, 1, 9, 22, 19, 22, 28, 8, 28, 6, I'm sorry. It is, understand that peace is better than contention. And I won't go through them all, but take note of them. Proverbs 15, 17, 21, 9, 19, 25, 24. Have peace. Even if you have a great deal, if I have peace, I like the, the first one, 15, 17. Better is a dish of vegetables where love is than a fattened ox served with hatred. I have a little bit, but man, my house is much better than all of that hatred and animosity in that other house where they're living large, if you will. Then also this, rebuke is better than silent affection. 
Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. That's better in life. It's also this. It's better to have close friends because when you have a close friend, they are one that sticks closer than a brother in time of need. And this is important later on in Ecclesiastes 4, as we'll see in a moment. Then it's also this. What else is better? Fearing God than the world's treasures. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. Better. Which is better? We have to choose this. Then let's go back to Ecclesiastes. Look at now at verse 8. So he says in verse 7, I looked again at vanity under the sun. Then in verse 8 through 12, the bleak picture of living without companionship. This is another picture that needs perspective. There's a certain man. He has no dependent, no son, no brother. Yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied. See, there is discontent with riches. And he never asked. And notice what he says. And he never asked. He never comes to grips with it. And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity And it is a grievous task because he is so overwhelmed with the riches that he's gaining. He never stops in life. He never gains that perspective. He never thinks about eternity. He is not thinking about God and his neighbor. He doesn't ask that important question. Why am I doing this? Why? I don't have a brother. I don't have a son. I don't have other relations. Obviously, I don't have friends. So why am I tasking myself for this? That's a question that many people have to ask. You know of accounts, and rarely do you hear, say for instance, it's not even rarely, I've never heard, I've never heard of an instance where someone is on their deathbed, and they have a, a list of broken relationships and broken promises. And they say, I wish I I would do it the same way again. What do you find in these people often that have all the things in life and they come to the end of life, what do they say? Oh my, what have I done? There's no one around. There's no one there for them. Because they're without companionship, is what he's saying. So he, he goes on to build in that thought, two are better than one because they have a good return for their lot. Sure, don't live life alone. Then when they fall, the other will lift them up because they have a companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is none to lift them up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can they be warm alone? So very practical um, allusions to just how life is when you fall if someone is there. Friend, up again. You're out and about and you you come together and you warm each other in that... um, under the cool breeze of the night. And then he goes on to say, yes, even beyond that, that cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Now, there have been some very interesting ways that people want to imagine the cord of three strands. Um, and you may have a question about it. Someone even said that it, it, some related it to the Holy the Trinity. So, what I need to do is when I pray, pray Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the cord of three strands, and that cannot easily be broken. 
um, pretty ridiculous position, but it's out there. Uh, no, he's just saying, have a companion. Know people. Don't be alone. Don't try to live life alone. This life is hard. It's difficult. You're going to grieve one day, and you'll need a friend that can just put their arm around you. Someone's going to die in your family too early. And you need someone that can pray for you and show understanding. You're going to get news, and the news won't be good from the doctor one day, perhaps. And there's a friend that can just come there and sit there with you and not say much and just listen. But if you're doing that by yourself, it makes life difficult. Number five. 13 and 14, the bleak picture of wisdom forfeited later in life and the hope providence um, balancing it. Yeah. What do I mean by that? 13 and 14, a poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. It's pretty straightforward. It's that idea of better. You may be young and you may be poor, but if you're wise, it's better than the old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. And what is that communicating? There's some wisdom there for all of us that as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, as we grow with time, um, we should grow in wisdom, should we not? At some point in time, there are people who think that they can no longer learn. And this is what it's saying here. Here's this king that doesn't know how to learn. So what happens? The, the young lad comes along, and he becomes popular. Because God says, and here's the balance, for he has come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in the kingdom. And God does that. Say, for instance, um, look at Ecclesiastes 7. Ecclesiastes 7. 719 says, wisdom strengthens a man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. It's an equalizer, if you will. Pro um, sorry, not Proverbs, but Ecclesiastes 9:15. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom, yet no one remembered the poor man. So he was beneficial. Though he didn't have status, God balances these issues in life sometimes. And you can think about Joseph. Here is Joseph himself, um, a prisoner. But yet God called him out of prison to be the leader of Egypt. And then the chapter ends. It comes to a close, 15 and 16. The bleak picture of placing hope in earthly leaders. So the old king, he doesn't heed instruction anymore. The young lad becomes popular. I have seen all the living under the sun. It says throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. So replaces him who replaces the old king. So why does he say second lad? What he's saying here is that old king at one point in time was a what? Lad. Now he's not. So now they're thinking the second lad, he will be the king that will last forever. He will be the king um, that will heed wisdom all of his days. Well, you thought that about the first lad. And now look, he's an old and foolish king. 
Then in verse 16, this is where it comes to a head. He says, there is no end to all the people, to all who were before them. And even the ones who will come later, he says, will not be happy with him. For this too is vanity and striving after wind. So you think, okay, we get rid of the other king. We bring in this young guy. He has new ideas, new insights. And he says, in the end, you won't be happy with him either. When you put too much hope in earthly leaders, you will always be disappointed. Is that true today? Because some people say, well, if you were just, if you voted only on that party, things would be much better in the world today. And then you find out, well, they're just as corrupt as the others. And you say, well, no, but th- that independent party, is that's the right party. Well, they're just as corrupt as the others. Some of them just have different levels of corruption, or they hide their corruption better than the others. Don't put your hope in these earthly leaders. You won't be happy with them either. Why? Because men don't have that eternal perspective they should, which is to love God and to love their neighbor. And if they did, you would be happy with them. And this is, I think, why Paul even has us in Timothy chapter 2 praying for all of our leaders. Why do we pray for them that they would live these a wise and godly life? Because they don't think eternally. Here's the reality. How can we expect people in the world to think eternally when we are the, who are the people of God don't always think eternally? That's an unfair expectation. But nonetheless, in the midst of all this bleakness, there is hope if we can love God and love our neighbor. And in that, there's satisfaction. Father, thank you for these words you give us, your goodness, grace, and mercy. And would ask that they encourage the hearts of everyone here, that you would use them in Jesus' name. Amen.